Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. There it is, we're in. We're in. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Undersampled Radio. This is episode, what episode is this? 35. (laughs) Uh, The 36th episode. Um, And we've got an awesome show today because uh, we've got a really uh, fun guest who I can't wait to talk to, Amanda Fries. She's at uh, UCLA, and there she is waving. and uh, we've got lots of questions for her about her science communications activities, among other things. And uh, Graham is also going to be taking us through the, the latest riddle me this riddle brain teaser thing, which I can't wait for because <laughs> for various reasons. Um, <laughs> and Graham also this I guess the big news this week is that Graham, Graham has lost his voice almost. Almost. I'm here. I'm here, oh, everyone. Heard that, Graham. What have you been doing? Uh, well, you know, I live in New Orleans and it's Mardi Gras time. So basically, I was screaming in the streets for eight hours last night, um, which was pretty. Wait, so I, I've never been to Mardi Gras. So how does the screaming come into it? What? So I I was in the parade last night and I was sort of hyping up the crowd as we were marching through a seven or seven mile route. Okay. And it, so usually these things take three hours or so, but it was, there were lots of breakdowns and parade stopping traffic-y things, so it took forever. So, um, feeling good, man, you know? Cool. About one hour sleep, no voice, and I'm gonna kick us off. Do you want me to do the, uh, do you want me to do the Riddle Me This thing? Well, I, you know, I don't have any news really this week. I'm like, uh, I, maybe I'll do a quick, uh, a quick roundup of where we're at with the hackathon, because we're just about to land on a couple well, we've got two um, co-working spaces that we're looking at hosting at. They're both fairly near to the um, the event center for EAGE in Paris, and um, they both look awesome. So I'm really, I was kind of, I'm always a bit stressed out about choosing a venue because you're never sure how many people you're going to have and how much money you want to spend. But the, both the places look great. So we'll be announcing, I hope next week, the venue for the hackathon. But if you're coming to Paris. Um, and you're looking for a place to stay anywhere near the event center is going to be great. So the Paris Expo. Um, other than that, I just seem to be writing a lot of abstracts and planning for a lot of, uh, I don't know, talks and things that are coming up, trying to stay on top of business development stuff and not a lot else to report, to be honest. Abstracts for what? Um, well, I'm doing a little talk at Dalhousie University in a couple of weeks. Um, on everyone's favorite theme of machine learning, geoscience stuff, and basically trying to jazz up some students and get them uh, interested in coming out to some of the local events around machine learning and learning to code and stuff like that. So that'll be for the geoscience faculty there. Um, And then I've got talks coming up in Calgary, and doing two talks in Calgary, one on a project we're just in the process of kind of wrapping up, and one on the famous seismic data extraction from images silliness that I've talked about before. Um, and then uh, I guess thinking about EA, uh, sorry, SEG, 
So you're going to have to, if you want to talk at SEG or do a poster, SEG is in Houston this September, I think. Uh, basically, the month of March is when they're looking for abstracts. So you need to get your skates on if you're going to pull together one of the extended abstracts for, for that. Because they're four pages long, and it's basically like writing a short paper. That's roller skates, not ice skates, because it's in Houston. Get, get whatever kind of skates, man. Whatever kind of skates you need to get to the deadline. So before I get into this next section, why don't you tell us why you didn't like last week's Riddle Me This. The calendar one? Yeah. Oh, I, just, I guess I just... I, 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 a couple of our I, listeners, I mentioned that on air, and a couple of our listeners asked me why you didn't like it. I think it's just the context. Like, I just want geoscience riddles. That's, okay. that's all it is. Well, we have no non-geoscience listeners, you know? Yeah, that's okay, I guess. Yeah, I, I get it. It's cool. I'm coming to terms with it, man. Don't worry. Okay. All right. I'm, you know, it's just an adjustment period. I'm, I'm an old fart, and I don't so always get these newfangled things. <laughs> As you folks know, uh, I am not a geologist. Uh, my educational background is in math and physics, and so I'm particularly excited for these. this pair of Riddle Me This Is one of which you're about to get the answer to because they're mathy. I like it. And in fact, the, the new question we have for you, which we'll give at the end of today's show, is very mathy and very exciting. It's one of my favorites. Okay, so here we go. Let me let me refresh your Do you remember it? Do you remember the, you don't even remember the real? Yeah, no, I do. Okay. Yeah. okay. There was something about a toilet at the beginning that I can't really remember, but the, fundamentally the idea was that you you had two cubes on your desk. Yeah. You wanted to be able to show the date uh -huh. on any given day of the month, uh -huh. uh, and uh, so what configuration of uh, digits on cube faces do you need in order to be able to show that date? Nice, uh, you got it. Did you figure out the answer? Yep, I did. Did I couldn't resist having a go despite my grumpiness? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> here is the answer. Okay, so you've got two cubes, which is 12 faces total, because there's six faces on each cube. Duh. Obviously, both of the cubes, you got to have... But, oh, you, you should have said we're working in three dimensions. <laughs> well, I would have said hypercubes. Um, okay, so you, you need um, zeros and ones and twos on the faces of the cubes. I'm, I'm sorry, on both of the cubes. And um, because you've got to represent all 30 one possibilities, but um, there aren't any 33rd days in any months, so only one of your cubes needs a three. Okay, so we've got, I'm counting on my fingers here for everyone listening on the podcast, <laughs> we've got zero, one, two, zero, one, two, three, what's that, seven faces, okay, so out of 12 we have five left, so we need a four, a five, a six, a seven, and an eight, right? That covers all the days possible. No, wait, we need a nine. Don't forget nine, 29th day. Um, but yeah, once you get to eight, once you get to eight, that's it. You've used 12. That's, yeah, you're out of faces. So what do you do? Right. You know, here's the magic, baby. You get nine and six can be the same thing. Just don't put any lines under them like they have on whatever. Right. The decahedron dice or something. Um, weren't you telling me you played Dungeons and Dragons the other day, or is that someone else? Is that some yeah, other? Dungeons and Dragons. I've done the adventure books though. Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone. They were awesome. 
All right, let me wrap it up here. <laughs> so cube one, we have a zero, one, two, three, four, five. Okay? Got it? Yep. Cube two, you've got zero, one, two, but then you have six, seven, eight. So the six is interchangeable with nine. So um, there you go. Mathematics. And there's, there's uh, so the, the follow-up question should be how much redundancy is there in your system? You could show lots of other numbers too. I can't think about that right now. What do you want, n-dimensional dice? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, why don't you introduce our guest already? Yeah, awesome. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amanda, for being there. Uh, You're so welcome. <laughs> Uh, so, Dr. Amanda Fries, um, a lecturer at UCLA, editor-in-chief of Signal to Noise magazine, which I really want to hear lots about because I'm into sort of scientific publishing in my own way, in my own way and signals and noise. So, all of those pieces. Um, and the founder of SciComm Hub, which I also want to hear about, so I don't know anything about that yet. And she's on LinkedIn and Twitter. And the links for all these things, as usual, are in the show notes. And uh, is there, how do people get to show notes if they're not in Software Underground, softwareunderground.org? They are linked on our website, um, on the Undersampled Radio webpage for each one of the episodes. You can find that website at where? Undersampledrad.io. That's it. Get it. Amanda, welcome um, to the show. Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Hi, and where are you today? I am in beautiful Los Angeles. And I say beautiful because we finally have had a, a break from the rain that we've had for the past couple months. Not that uh, I'm complaining, because yeah. we really needed it. But I was missing the sunshine. <laughs> Big floods still going on, right, in California? And yeah, like... huge, especially in uh, Northern California. But as you may know, um, we've suffered from uh, incredible drought during like, the last five or six years. So this has really helped us. It hasn't, we're not uh, out of the woods yet, but it has helped a lot. Right, and you're in a very bright and sunny-looking place. Is that is that, you're in your office yeah. at uh, the UCLA campus? Yes, in my office. Yeah, right nice. down the hall is... from the the class where I teach. Okay, awesome. What class, and do you it... teach? So uh, I teach in the microbiology department, and this course is is really special. It's for upper degree upper division undergraduates, and uh, a lot of undergrads have to take lab courses where they you know maybe answer some questions that are posed to them and do a couple experiments in lab, but they don't really have the chance to explore and like really think critically about the work that they're doing. So in this class, which we call a research immersion course, um, the topic is looking at bacteria that live in the soil. And we give the students some background information, but then we say, we want you to come up with your own uh, hypothesis and research project and how you're going to test it. We give them some experiments that they might want to do, but we kind of give them freedom also to try new things. And then they have six months to they have three months of wet lab where they um, do these functional assays and isolate DNA. And then the following three months are bioinformatics analysis, where they then look at the metagenomics from their uh, bacterial sample and learn about the different microbes that are present. And they, so it's totally student driven. They have the freedom to decide what they want to investigate. And then I and the other instructional staff are here to just kind of like guide them and advise them on the way. So it's really unlike uh, typical research courses and I'm, or typical lab courses, and I'm really glad that I have the, the chance to teach it. Hmm. That's cool. And what kind of, what kind of, um, how do they get graded on that? Are they turning stuff in, or are you just like present the whole time? Yeah. So there, there are a lot of assignments. They have some homework. We're reading primary literature every week. 
Um, they have to keep up with their experiments. There's a lot of presentations because we want them to practice their presentation skills, writing scientific papers, um, participating in class. I have a lot of participation points for participation. So, uh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, do you? Um, uh, I, I I don't know a great deal about where your sort of interests in uh, publishing and, and communications lie, but. Um, do you get to touch much on reproducibility and those some of those sort of themes with them? Yeah, definitely. So because we have six months together and, and because they are doing so many of these experiments, uh, I mean, they're, they're doing novel work. You know, a lot mm. of these microorganisms have not necessarily been cultured before or been tested in the way that they're testing them. So no. we, we touch on all those things. We talk about the importance of doing multiple trials. We, we talk about, you know, not too in-depth, but we talk about statistics as well. Um, so it's like, I think that the name of the course, the course Research Immersion, is, is really uh, accurate because this course is meant as an alternative to for undergrads who might otherwise go work in a lab, which is sort of the stereotypical undergraduate research experience. And uh, if you go and work in a lab, you're, you're, you, you have um, the experience that an undergrad might have could be totally different. It's really going to depend on their advisor. It's going to depend on whether or not other people in the lab are kind of like interested or, and, and willing to support them and mentor them and teach them. Whereas here, with this six months experience, uh, experience, they get to ask the questions. They get to analyze all their own data. They do all of the work, um, so they they really have a, a really good experience. That's awesome. And um, so that, like, how long have you been? Uh, I mean, it sounds like putting that whole program together has probably been quite a lot of work, and is a bit of an ongoing experiment, probably from your yeah, side. Certainly, yeah, it's always. Uh, <laughs> Um, in flux, uh, but I, I kind of just jumped in. So the course has been under development for like seven years, oh, okay. um, but I just started teaching it um, this January because I am newly minted. I finished my PhD in December. So congratulations! Yeah. How are you changing the course? Do you get to put your own uh, touch on it? Absolutely. So I, they've given me a lot of freedom. Part of what we're trying to do is update um, the literature that we're looking at. So when this course came out and the textbook was written, um, this was like when in like 2006, where next gen sequencing was just sort of starting to ramp up. And so in the book, they talk about doing um, this old method, like cloning for, for DNA sequencing. And we don't we don't really do that anymore, at least not if we can help it. So we're trying to update the literature. This year, so in the past, when they they collected um, their soil samples, we just went to the botanical garden on UCLA campus. But a really exciting development this year is that we are collaborating with a research lab on campus, Nathan Crafts Lab, and they do fieldwork studying um, diversity in plant species. So I got to take my students out to um, the reserve out by Santa Barbara, where they this our collaborators do their plant research um, because they're kind of like one of their new directions is looking at microbe diversity and how that relates to plant diversity. So we collected our samples there and then we're going to be able to give them the sequencing data that we obtain and then they can make something of that too. So it's really nice as well that students get to do their own research project and they're part of a bigger research project um, on campus. So. That's very cool. Does it end up in publications for the students uh, in, in scientific journals? Some students, because they have discovered um, new organisms or new functions, they have published things in the past. Um, and it kind of depends on, I mean, a lot of it is just what you find, but 
they come up with some really interesting questions too. So it's been fun to, to watch and, and see what they come up with. Cool. I've just noticed, in case you guys are not watching the uh, TV version of this and you're listening on the podcast, you won't, you won't see this. Uh, it turns out Amanda is wearing the coolest, nerdiest earrings I've ever seen. Are, oh. those, are those little DNA strands? Sweet. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, what did you, can you tell us a bit about your PhD? Sure. And what you're researching and, and how this led into your position here? Yeah, uh, it was uh, very different. So I, I graduated from the Department of Molecular and Medical Pharmacology, and essentially I was working on protein engineering and creating um, proteins, which we could then use to improve nuclear imaging for diagnostics. So um, uh, the specific type of imaging that I was working with was a PET scan or a positron emission tomography. And PET scans are really commonly used, um, I'll just use cancer because it's sort of like the most common example. Um, the, any type of uh, imaging, like medical imaging, is sort of limited by how good the target, the thing that you're interested in, in is looking at, or in, in looking at how good that target is, like if it's specific, um, uh, if it's like easily accessible in the body. So you have your target, and then you have your probe. How good is your tool that you're using to look at that target? And we were trying to improve those. So head scanning is typically done with radioactive glucose because cancer cells really like to eat glucose. It does gobble it up compared to your other cells. Um, but the rest of your body still needs glucose. And sometimes you'll have cancer that doesn't like glucose as much as other cancers. So we actually developed um, these proteins called antibody proteins, um, which many people are familiar with because they are a naturally existing protein in your immune system, and they participate in the immune response. And the main thing that you need to know about an antibody is that they kind of work like puzzle pieces. They can recognize um, other proteins and molecules, for example, things that are expressed on the outside of bacterial cells or even on your own cells. They can recognize them really specifically. So like, let's say that I had a, a protein on the surface of a cancer cell, and I wanted to use that protein to be able to identify cancer cells throughout the body. We would make an antibody that would like recognize and kind of like a, like a jigsaw puzzle piece, stick to that protein. And on that antibody, we put a radioactive atom, and then we inject it into the organism, and then it travels all throughout the organism, and then wherever those cancer cells are with that specific molecule, the antibody goes, and then we can do a PET scan to detect the radioactivity and figure out where the target is. So you can develop antibodies that recognize just about anything, as long as it's on the surface of the cell. And uh, I actually was doing it for a different purpose. I was looking for a specific type of immune cell and studied how we can use this imaging to detect these immune cells in the context of inflammatory bowel disease. So. Uh, studying how the immune system acts uh, if you have inflammatory bowel disease, and that was my PhD. So pretty different from soil bacteria. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, so Matt and I do a lot of remote sensing in a different sense. We work with seismic data, and it would be very neat, Matt, if we could stain our targets somehow or, or a known um, blob of something to yeah. uh, quantify our, our, the error and uncertainty in our experiment. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. I've I've never seen um I've I've seen like two D pictures of PET scan data, but I assume from the fact that it's got tomography in the name that you get a right. three dimensional image. That was my favorite part of it, to be honest, was the amazing yeah. images that we got. So I, I worked with um with the animals and 
uh, we would get these stunning images and, and you know, we'd like spin them around. So you've got like the whole mouse and you can see, since I was looking at immune cells, you could see the lymph nodes where the immune cells had also gathered. And then in mice, which, um, which had an inflammatory bowel disease, then we could like see additional immune cells in the gut area because it was inflamed. So, um, and it, it's just like beautiful to see that and could be really poten uh, potentially be very helpful clinically. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, so. And is that often done uh, at the same time as uh, a CT scan? Yeah, that's a really good point. So PET alone um, can, it doesn't give you any anatomical information. You have to combine it with anatomical imaging like right. CT or X-ray or, or MRI in order to um, firmly localize. For example, you saw like a lymph node, but you wouldn't know exactly where in the mouse that was. So some clinical PET scanners have CT or MRI included in them. And a lot of the preclinical or, or ones that we use for animal imaging also have the PET CT. So we would do CT as well. Right, because those sort of multimodal blended images look totally awesome. Like, yeah. so, they're so yeah, beautiful. They're, they're beautiful. And, and that's, what I, that's what I love about imaging is that you can, I mean, all we see looking at people is just like skin and we can kind of imagine what's on the inside, but with medical imaging, you can actually see what's inside and, and that's that's an amazing tool. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's similar to how people are doing functional MRI while, you know, like in living subjects, can you do that with PET as well? I mean, PET is inherently um, functional because you, you're, you're labeling your probe and your probe is going to interrogate any function that you, that you choose or anything that you can make a pet probe for. So often pet probes, like I mentioned glucose, you can also make other labeled pet probes that, that interrogate that uh, like are molecules that have, um, that are part of some other metabolic pathway, like nucleotide synthesis. You can use that to study our cells proliferating rapidly and therefore synthesizing a lot of DNA. You can label an, a, a, a DNA, a, a probe that would interrogate that or, um, you know, uh, other markers on the surface of particular cells that you're interested in. So it, it's inherently functional, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So I first ran into Amanda on Twitter um, because I'm looking for people to tell me how to do my job in, <laughs> <laughs> in Calgary in May. So Matt and I are doing a course along with his um, friend, uh, the, the, the Evan, uh, sorry, <laughs> brain fart. Um, on science communication and oh, fantastic. Amanda's a pro. So tell us a bit about your outreach into the general scientific community. Sure. Um, so maybe I can kind of give you like a, a quick history. So uh, I loved my PhD work, but probably about like a few years in, I realized that I, I didn't want to work at the bench forever because um, I realized there were things I enjoyed even more, like talking about science rather than doing it. Um, and so I started looking into this field of science communication. And um, what I quickly found was that um, there weren't a lot of resources um, for people that wanted to transfer out of a traditional um, scientific PhD career. Like, you, so I was always presented that like, you have two options, at least with a PhD in biology. You can go down the academic route and continue doing research and try to become a professor or you can go into like the biotech or pharma industry. And neither of those appealed to me. And so uh, a colleague of mine, Laura Haney, who actually has a PhD in physics, she and I um, put together SciComm Hub. And we wanted that to, we thought if we're having this problem and we can't really find that many resources and how to look into these other careers, like if we wanted to teach or if we really just wanted to do outreach or science policy or science writing, 
we're struggling with that, then surely there must be other grad students and even um, more uh, established scientists that also have those questions. So that's why we put SciComm Hub together and we just gathered a bunch of resources that we found and put them all online for anybody to, to share and use. And then at, at the same time, we were also sort of feeling that um, we wanted to, to find those other students who were feeling that way because we felt a little isolated. Um, so we built community on the UCLA campus. And then you guys may also be familiar with the IM SciComm Twitter account. Um, so that's really been like so, so rewarding to see how we've built a community. So every week, um, a different person takes over the account. It's a Roker account. And they, they share their experiences with SciComm. What are they doing? How did they get there? And uh, we've grown, it's been about a year and a half and there's like now 8,000 followers on the account. And so it's 8,000 people that now, um, maybe some of them don't feel as isolated anymore, you know, if they were also grad students and were interested in this and everybody's learning and, and sharing from each other. So that's been really tremendous. And then um, in addition to our online community, I mentioned that we built community at, at UCLA. And so Laura and I, both had attended um, science communication conferences. So ComSciCon is one that's led by grad students for grad students. And we learned so much there. Um, big shout out to them because they were awesome. So we did a lot of workshops, we learned a lot. And then we said, we've got to take this back to UCLA. So we actually created our own little course, like a curriculum of eight workshops. And each workshop um, had a different science communication uh, like technique or topic that we were covering. And we this is our second year doing them. I'm doing them now with another student, Jeff Malloy. And um, they've been really popular and the feedback has been really good. Students have said, this is really cool. Like I, I was really interested in this and I didn't know how to do it. And uh, the graduate program in biosciences is actually asking us to do them more because they also recognize the value, not only of sharing these types of careers with their students, but also in, even if students are want to continue down that academic or biotech career path, they need to be able to communicate their science well. So we just did one yesterday, um, social media for scientists and why students should, uh, should shouldn't, students and all scientists um, should kind of treat social media as an opportunity to advance their careers and to share their science. And then we also do some on um, three minute talks because UCLA or the UC system has a, uh, a competition every year called Grad Slam. You may have heard of this. It's all, other people do three minute thesis. So how to give a, a talk in three minutes. So we, we practiced those as well, and those have been really great. Um, sorry, I kind of rambled for a while. So, But I think your course will be very popular because um, a lot of people, it, it's still somehow kind of a new thing to like talk about talking about science, or at least to do it formally. And so I'm always really glad to hear when people are like leading courses and getting others involved in that. How long are the courses for the SAIC course program? Um, we we did like in an hour and a half. For each one, and oh, our, okay. yeah, our focus—we uh, there were sort of just like standalone workshops, but uh, our focus was really heavily on participation. So we would lecture, or like you know, I, hate, I just hate lecturing at people. So we would kind of like have a discussion um, for maybe like 15 minutes, and then we would really try to whatever we were working on at that time, we would we would try to put it into practice right away. So you know, we did uh, for our elevator pitch one. We we talk about like here are some things you might want to include, but hey, let's practice now. Um, because that's how you get good at it. And uh, we did one about uh, science writing for a lay audience, and we asked everybody to come uh, with written pieces so that we could give feedback and kind of uh, let them know like how they could change things and 
and so on. So I think that the participation live, yeah. In the course, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Take notes. Take notes, Matt. This is what we need to do. Is it? <laughs> are the short courses available to the public or only UCLA students? Um. So. I mean, I would be happy to have anyone come. I think at this last one, we had UCLA media relations people show up, and they enjoyed it. Um, they, the only thing is, like, if somebody at UCLA campus is sponsoring it, then they might want it to be for UCLA people specifically. But I am happy to have everybody come. Um, and we've talked to, we haven't really got figured out the infrastructure for it yet, but like about recording these workshops and putting them online. So, so that's something we might do in the future, too. Awesome uh, idea. Which awesome you would idea. like to see, right? <laughs> well, I was just, I mean, my follow-up question was, uh, are you going to have some of these courses before, you know, say May, <clears throat> for interested uh, people who want to learn about how to present science? <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd be happy to, to share more with you. Cool. Well, we look forward to seeing some stuff online. I think that would be awesome. Matt, how about you? Yeah, I, I, I really like the... Um, the idea of um, showing students and grad students, you know, that because I like we get this in our you know applied science and we're sort of industrial scientists um, a lot too, where I feel like we only talk about certain sort of career paths, mm -hmm. and uh, you know the communication. So the communication thing works on a couple of levels. I mean, one, it can actually be you know a job and you can. Um, make a living or at least uh, part of a living out of science communication um, but yeah it's also just the way that it builds especially involvement in things like social media and blogging and just finding new channels for your work just really helps build proper community and proper sort of uh, sustainable relationships between scientists in different institutions and in an industry versus academia and that kind of cross a lot of borders right you know a lot of age gaps get crossed a lot of diversity gaps get crossed and um so that's that's why it always makes me sad when i hear, sort of hear scientists go oh i don't have time for social media or whatever and i think they think you know like well there's nothing in it for me yeah you know I mean? so uh, and um oh it's just noise or whatever but i know that it's actually does so much more than that, you know, as a way of actually making a stronger community and um, talking about all sorts of things that we don't often really talk about, ethical issues and diversity issues and, um, you know, the stuff that otherwise can go un untalked about. Yeah. And that, that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah, I, I, I was, I did my, it took me about five and a half years to do my, my PhD and I was kind of you know, when I was looking back, I was thinking to myself, you know, there were so few times that I had like, like human conversations mm. with my colleagues, you know, like you said about diversity or about ethics. And I don't think it's that people are unwilling to talk about those things. I think it's just that it's not really encouraged. And um, science and maybe even grad school in general, or in particular, can be very isolating. Like mm. you, you kind of stick to yourself in your lab, and maybe you chat with your collaborators, but there's not really, there's not. I was gonna say there's not like a good feeling of community, and I I think that's only true in like maybe the social sense, or at least that was my experience. There's a really nice community, at least here at UCLA, um, in an academic sense. Like it's easy to like go talk to your neighbors, but when it comes to like kind of finding 
you know, interpersonal community, that was harder to do. So I hope that, mm-hmm. and that's so important. That's so important. Mm-hmm. So I hope that that, um, that more of that happens. We were talking about this a, a couple weeks ago um, with, with uh, someone else who does uh, outreach within sciences in particular. And he, he mentioned this interesting dichotomy between the social and professional lives of scientists. And his, in his words, he said, you're paid to show up, you're paid for your brain to show up to work, right? And aside from that, I mean, it was surprising, our conversation, I mean, I, I feel like scientists in general are, are on average more open-minded to new ideas than the general public, and yet we're unable to speak with each other about social and personal aspects, even just related to our, to our professions. So, right. um, yeah, I, I, I love the social media, the blogging thing. Just get get on there and start, you know, attacking people or, or what, not attacking people, but challenging people and, and provoking people into interesting conversations. So, yeah, yeah. have a personality besides your academic one. Yeah, but I, th- I think some of those sort of they're really subtle things, and actually, I haven't thought about them a great deal before talking to you, really. But um, you know, it is I think people tend to think, "Oh, psychom, that's all about you know trying to explain something like uh, um, microbe DNA sequencing to the lay population," you know. But actually, there's a sort of lot of dimensions to it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Do you do you? Um, so I mean, the, this, the workshops that you run sound really cool. How much traction do you get with it? Like this class that you were talking about earlier, it sounds like you bring some of it into there. Do you see the wider UCLA population or biology population at UCLA also? Is there a sort of awakening going on around stuff like outmetrics or an acceptance of the need for Twitter in the department and this kind of thing? Uh... Well, okay, so I mentioned that competition, like the three-minute competi- uh, three thesis competition or the mm-hmm. UC Grad Slam, and I think that's a really good indicator of there starting to be a cultural shift because if it's coming from like the, you know, the very top of the UC system, then there must be, they must be realizing like, oh, this is important and we should do it. So that's, that's like heartening to know, but um, it really depends. I know of a few faculty who, who are really supportive and, and kind of interested in this. And then I know a few who are like, whatever, do your own thing. But I think that the majority are sort of like not not into it. And some, not the majority, but some men are like, you're wasting your time. Like, what are you doing? Um, and but so they're- That's sorry. what I was going to say. Like, it won't, another way of thinking about it, I guess, is it, you're, are you a tenure track? I don't really understand how tenure works, but is no, tenure... I'm, a, I'm in a lecture position. Okay, okay, but but one day you might look for a tenure track type. Job. Yeah, and and I think that um, kind of out of necessity. So, for example, like NSF grants now, they well they have for a while they've had those broader impacts uh, requirements, and okay. people are getting uh, because funding is is so competitive, you have to be your best in all of those sections, and I think that um, maybe. That, that seems to be the, the section that many faculty like struggle with the most, but it's becoming clear that that's gonna be really important because it's so competitive. 
so I think if 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 for funding reasons alone, um, if that's the only reason, yeah, it, it may become more of a priority. But I don't feel that there's a sense that it's a priority or will become one because people think that it's an important thing to do. But but maybe like the current political climate may change that. I mean, the March for Science is coming up. Like that's captured so many people's attention. Mm -hmm. And um, as as things happen, uh, you know, there was a, a couple articles that say that more and more scientists are thinking about like running for government. So maybe they'll be engaged not so much in some some scientists they really don't have any interest in reaching out to you know they they may think of like science outreach and they think of like going to a classroom and not everybody is into that and i think that's okay I, i'm not really particular to working or partial about working with kids myself but um some some people could be really energized by the thought of like speaking to voters and making voters understand why it's important you know to preserve science funding and understand climate change and things like that so I think that in terms of getting faculty and, and uh, universities and institutions to recognize the importance of science communication, you have to meet people where they're at. And in fact, this is the same thing with science communication itself when you're trying to bring science to someone who's not into it. You have to meet them where they're at, you know, make things relevant to them, put it in context so that it makes sense to them that this is important and valuable. Um, and it's the same thing with science, scientists too. Right. And so, um, like, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about the Signal to Noise magazine. Um, is that is there an explicit connection there with SciComm Hub? Um, is it an extension of that, or is it a separate project? It, it's definitely related because um, Laura and I and one other student, Nizar Farhat, founded the magazine, and it kind of sprouted out of. Um, actually, it was when I was uh, writing my my first scientific article, and I and I hadn't written anything long form in like three or four years. And uh, that was very painful. Oh my gosh, it was so painful. And I realized as you know, I started making more progress over the course of like months, um, I realized, oh my gosh, this would have been uh, so much less painful had I been in practice this whole time. It's just like, um, uh, it's like exercising, you know, you have to kind of stay in practice in order to make it easy and comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought to myself, well, if I'm having so much struggle, you know, writing this paper, then surely other people must be experiencing the same thing. And um, writing, and in addition, you know, writing the paper really helped me like think my ideas through. And writing can be also a really effective form of communication as well. So kind of like my goal for Signal to Noise was to make it a, a tool for grad students and, and earlier career scientists um, to kind of like help them um, develop a skill that was going to be critical no matter what their career path. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we also wanted to educate people too. So that's why we, all the articles published on Signal Noise, we, we write them um, like in a tone and in a format that's suitable for a general audience. Uh, and so many of the students uh, who came together to work on the magazine um, were part of SciComm Hub and had attended the workshops. So there was kind of a, a natural transition there, but um, formally, in terms of how they're organized, they're they're separate entities. Uh, I see, and it, um, it's uh, so it's a kind of a group. It's online only, I assume. Yes. Or no? yeah. yeah, we, we would like uh, to do a print print edition at some point, and we're we are just about to hit our first anniversary, which is pretty cool. Okay. Um, and we're also registered as a as a nonprofit as well. So. 
um, it's a group of about nine grad students and a couple of us who have graduated. Uh, totally volunteer based and we all are just really passionate about writing, about educating the public uh, about science and about providing these grad these opportunities to grad students. Mm -hmm. And so we accept articles. Um, we have, a, we kind of try to, not only do we want people to develop writing skills, but as a kind of a, a third aim, we hope to give some training to scientists and grad students who think that they might want to pursue science writing as a professional career. So we have people submit pitches, just like you would if you were submitting a pitch to, to a, another uh, outlet. And then um, we, we really give heavy feedback with a lot of comments because many of the people who write for us, um, they're accustomed to writing for for their peers or for other scientists. And we really have to kind of work with them to get the tone right and like the level of, of detail for a general audience. Um, and so we have staff who, who help uh, do peer editing, who are also writing for the magazine, um, creating artwork. And uh, thus far, the feedback that I've gotten from people outside of um, our own staff who have written for us has been really positive. They said, oh, this feedback was so helpful. Thank you so much. Like, this has been a really good introduction. And um, and I'm, we actually just had elections and I didn't rerun for editor-in-chief because, because this is a, a training tool for scientists. I kind of want to make sure that the other students who have been working on the, the magazine also have a chance to learn the skills that come from being in a more, in, in like a higher position, like editor-in-chief. So. That was really valuable to me as a grad student to learn like managerial skills, something that you don't necessarily get as a grad student. So now we have new people coming in and that way they have room to kind of like let their vision shape the magazine too. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's what's beautiful about it that, you know, we are kind of like sharing these opportunities for, for professional development. How do you, how do you find authors for um, Signal Noise and I Am SciComm? Um, so I am SciComm has been around long enough that now people, it's not hard anymore. Like people want to host it. Um, at the beginning, I was like kind of begging people, like, "Hey, would you would you be willing to do this?" Um, but now now people sort of come come to us, which is really nice. For Signal to Noise, we're still sort of in that that first boat where we're we're asking our friends, we're saying, "Hey, this could be like a really cool opportunity for you to um, practice describing, for example, your research in in a new format." And then um, we also advertise via Twitter um, saying, you know, hey, interested in science writing? Like, this is a, a great outlet to, to, to practice. Um, but it would be nice if someday we, we didn't have to, to um, beg people to write. Not, not beg, but like go after them. Uh, it's just that we're still relatively new, so we don't have as big of a following as the IM site. Hmm. That's awesome. Well, it, I think it's an awesome idea to uh, sort of co-syndicate the um, Roker account, uh, and not necessarily like a Roker Twitter account, but some revolving short publication something um, with a targeted community group, like uh, for example, Matt, <coughs> the Software Underground. You know what I mean? Um, because you get to you get to involve people from a much broader audience. Right. Um, right. And you, get, you get to you get to talk with people who have completely different views on things. Exactly. You do. It's really valuable. It sure is. Um, hey, Matt. You know what time it is? You know. Is it? Is it? Is it time for your puzzle? It is. It <laughs> is time for my puzzle, everyone. Oh, we carry on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, I, I'd really loved hearing about Amanda's uh, activities with the, but both to, sort of on the, you know, the really important community um, sort of strengthening and generation side of things. Uh, and uh, I really like this giving kind of attention to work experience and the possibility, like transferable skills and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not just important to students, you know, it's um, like we, Graham and I do a lot of work in uh, in um, oil and gas and other subsurface industries. And, you know, there's just been a lot of layoffs and people suddenly realize right. halfway through their careers, oh, right, I actually do need transferable skills now and again and career options and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, really given, given me anyway a lot to think about with different angles and different ways of coming at this. So thank you for that. Yeah, and of course. Um, now, now we get to listen to Graham's communication of his brain teaser for this week. You look thrilled. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I, well, he, 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 he communicated it to me through the medium of writing and I, and I got a bit lost and, um, and I asked for a diagram because I like diagrams. So I asked for drawings, but of course we can't do drawings on a podcast. So now we get the audio version and yeah. I'm all ears, man. Additionally, <clears throat> this puzzle, I've written up a Julia script, Matt's favorite programming language, to solve the answer, which I'll distribute next week with the answer. Okay. So it's truly a multimedia problem. <laughs> yep, that's it. I mean, if you want, I guess next week you could just word for word or letter for letter read out the script. but. I don't think well, I, like well, we can try doing it through mime or something like that. It's good on the radio. Yeah. All right. Here's yeah. the here's the here's the riddle. Okay. So, this is again one of my favorites, and and Matt was so hard on me last week about not having a geologic riddle that I I attempted to um, obfuscate this in a geologic <laughs> way, which is why it is so confusing and the worst science communication of. All time. Calcite is a mineral which exhibits birefringence. And oh, thanks. I'm glad you asked. Birefringence means it's a materials property which um, is related to crystalline structure, which means that there are two in, uh, refractive indices in the material. And so um, if you, for instance, were to look at some image through a, a piece of calcite, you'd actually see two two images, um, and then sort of conversely or relatedly, you if you shine a light through a piece of calcite, you'll see two of those of those transmitted light patterns on the other side. So these things um, are uh, joined in a way, so they're offset from each other. The the two images. Um, so if you rotate a piece of birefringent material, you will see the images translate with respect to each other. So here's the setup. There's a long, long lab table with one million sample holders. Is, it, is that the number I used? Mm -hmm. I'm, not even, I'm not reading this. It's, it's, I, again, it's my favorite. I can just do it from memory. A million sample holders lined up in a line down the table. Okay, and each one of the sample holders, which is what it doesn't really matter, it's let's say it's 10 centimeters above the table. There is a piece of calcite in each one of these sample holders. And we line them up, we rotate all the calcite samples such that 
their transmitted light pattern is pointed in the most, let me make sure I get it right with the notes here, in the most eastward direction, okay? So if we were to rotate one of the samples 180 degrees, we would see that the light transmitted would be pointing most in the westward direction. Okay, you got it? Lab Which table, yeah. a million samples. Rotating them changes the way the light is pointing through them. Okay. Got it? Okay. So, we also have one million mineralogists at the door to this mineralogy lab. Okay. So, all the samples are lined up to the east. First mineralogist walks down the entire length of the table and rotates every sample 180 degrees so that all of the samples are now pointing in the westward direction. The second mineralogist walks down the table and turns every other sample back the other direction. So now half the samples are pointed westward, half the samples are pointed eastward. The third mineralogist walks down the table and turns every third sample and so on and so forth. Fourth turns every fourth sample, fifth turns every fifth sample until you get to what? The millionth mineralogist, right? Yeah, who obviously only turns one sample, which would be the millionth sample. This is Matt's uh, least favorite type of system. It's a one indexed system. <laughs> okay, so the question is, after all this rotating business, after the million mineralogists have come, done their thing, which samples are transmitting light most westward and which most eastward? Got it? Yeah. So, as I said, this is a good, as Matt would say, proper mathy problem. Um, I not, not contrived at all. No. Uh, so it seems like a related Fermi problem would be how many mineralogists are there in the world? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that you liked the, the uh, middle this week, Matt. It's good. Um, I want to thank um, Dr. Amanda for coming on the show and um, teaching us what we need to know to teach whoever we're teaching in May. <laughs> <laughs> and so keep us updated with your progress. And if you get some stuff online from the courses, audience, check out the show notes because we have links to all the publications, Roker accounts, the Twitter stuff. Uh, and again, it's, it's all awesome information. Amanda, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, thank you. Guys, we will see you next week with uh, Under Sample Radio episode 36. Bye. Bye.